Bushmasters. It's BTG. Welcome to another episode of Semi-Indestructible, presented proudly in partnership with the Wild Times Podcast and sponsored by Adventure Beast, the wildlife animated comedy series now streaming worldwide on Netflix. Every language on the planet, uh, if you've got a television, you can watch it. Uh, it's a joy to be back. Uh, got an unusual show today. I'm flying solo. There's a whole bunch of reasons for that, uh, but it's going to be a great show. I'm going to talk about uh, love and death in Hollywood and how I broke into making wildlife shows and movies and, and all the rest of it, how I got to be where I am today. A lot of the Bushmasters have an interest in making wildlife television and film, as well as other TV uh, and film projects, not just wildlife. I'm going to explain how I got here. It was an unusual journey that makes no sense uh, if you want a linear explanation. So I'm going to spell out uh, the random events and happenings that got me to where I am today in the hope that you can some glean uh, some, uh, some meaningful professional lessons that'll help you expedite your own journey to Hollywood or, or wherever it is you want to end up and make TV and film. A um, uh, little bit of housekeeping from last week. Got a great response, our longest pod ever, talking about rage and death with uh, U.S. Uh, Air Force Special Operations Master Sergeant Wes Bryant. He's a great man and a great friend and uh, just a great war fighter. Terrific to pick his brains. It was funny because he and I were talking after the pod. And even though we talked for almost two hours, it's just so much we, which we touched upon. And then the next day we talked again because all these memories came flooding back and um, it made us laugh and, and, you know, a few tears as well. We lost some good friends and, and uh, it was interesting to reflect on that. I, I was telling him this strange memory I haven't thought about for a very long time came into my head and I was a young paratrooper commander and in the army uh, you do this thing called a basic fitness test now every army has a version of it um, and they have different levels of grades you know a b and c c being you're a fat slug and, and a being you're considered at the top of the pile but in reality once you get going and particularly if you end up in an elite combat unit um, an a pass is nothing it's not even the beginning of what's required to be there so it's a it's a formality that you'll get the a pass now you do these at least once a year as a unit but for whatever reason, just as, at least for the army to ascertain that you're strong enough or, or fit enough to do a specialty course, uh, a specialist course, you have to do the basic fitness test before every course. Now, I had a very busy couple of years when I got to the unit and I was put on the track to be a heavy weapons platoon commander uh, as my first specialist posting after having a parachute rifle platoon. So mine warfare, heavy weapons, heavy machine guns, blah, 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 basic level, and then officer NCO level and instructor level. So I was doing courses all the time. I had basically no leave, which meant that I was doing basic fitness tests or BFTs every other week. Now, one part of the basic fitness test is a 15 kilometer run in, in combat gear. And again, when you're a brand new rookie, it seems fairly intimidating, but once you've done a few of these, it's, it's really nothing. It's a walk in the park. It was done on the edge of a major weapons range, this huge uh, range area, and, you know, many hundreds of square miles. And it was just this undulating uh, grassland, and it just all looked the same. But I'd done this run so many times that I had worked out the exact pace I needed to maintain in order to get an A pass without really trying. So not having to overdo it or panic or have to run late or anything like that. Just, you know, nice cruise, nice pace, lift the knees, drive forward. And, uh, you know, I crossed the line, I don't know, 
I don't know, a minute ahead of schedule, easy A pass. Now, this young paratrooper, um, I don't know if he had his wings at that point, but he got to the unit and he was sort of coming along and he'd asked me, he knew I'd done the course many times and he said, you know, where's the turnaround point? Where, you know, what's the, what should we do here? I said, look, mate, all you have to do is sit on my six and just stick with me because I know the exact pace. If you just sit behind me and maintain my pace, you'll be fine. And he was getting a little bit anxious. I said, where's the turnaround point, sir? I said, yeah, it's up ahead. It's one of these rolling hills. But I said, don't worry about that. Forget about, the, forget about the distance. Just focus on the pace. Anyway, the poor bastard, he kept asking where the turnaround point is, and I couldn't remember. It all looks the same. And I kept saying, don't worry about the distance. Don't worry about the turnaround point. Just focus on the pace. But he got inside his own head, and he blew up, and he didn't make it. And he didn't end up staying with the unit. And I felt bad. I was saying to Wes, I felt bad that I kind of got inside his head. I didn't mean to. And Wes assured me that the guy, you know, he really wasn't suited for that kind of job then. And maybe he was right. Maybe he just had a bad day. And Wes raised that as well. It doesn't matter how good you are, how strong you are, how tough you are. We all have good days and bad. And on your bad days, you're not going to perform as well as you could on otherwise. So anyway, I felt bad about that. It came back into my head. But the, the message that I gave him is a really important one. Um, and it pertains to today's episode about, you know, love and death and in Hollywood. It's just, there is no turnaround point. You've just got to maintain the pace. Don't even think about the distance because I was going to share in a minute. Some of the projects that I got up, uh, took years. One took eight years from creation to actually getting it on the screen. Um, it took so long. Others turn around really quickly. There's there's no obvious turning point. There's no obvious finishing line. You've just got to maintain the intensity and maintain your pace and don't get inside your own head. You've got to get up, enjoy the suffering, exult in the opportunity, and the rest will sort itself out. One of the themes that's going to come up a lot in this conversation is how work begets work opportunity begets opportunity. And there's often a very precarious connection between one and the other. Uh, one of my heroes and friends uh, is the great John Cleese of Monty Python. If you're not a Monty Python pan, fan, then, you know, why aren't you? Uh, but he's a great mentor and a great friend. Uh, we didn't meet in Hollywood. We met through wildlife conservation. Both of us were very heavily committed to wildlife conservation all around the world. You probably remember me talking about the Durrell Wildlife Conservation Trust that I refer to as the Green Berets of Con uh, Conservation because they go in there with small elite teams. They do it on a shoestring. They work with local people. They get shattered by local people so that when they finally pull out, the conservation programs in situ continue to operate even without them. And that's very elite because a lot of projects, they raise a lot of money, they splash it on a project, they fly a lot of experts in. And then when they pull everything out, it just falls over. It happens all the time, all the time. It doesn't happen with the Durrell team. So we're both uh, life benefactors of Durrell Wildlife Conservation Trust or Durrell as it's known. And uh, we both were heading over to the annual general meeting uh, in St. Helier's on the island of Jersey and the Channel Islands between France and the UK. And we both happened to be staying at the same hotel. Didn't know that. Uh, didn't see him there. I was out having a break. There was a little patio area. It was a nice warm day, which is not super common there, but it was a lovely day. And uh, I was just sitting out on a deck chair by this pond. And there was a series of, of waterfowl there. 
And one of them was a black swan from Australia. So an incredible oddity for avian enthusiasts in the Northern Hemisphere, but to me, a little feathered slice of home. So I was just, I don't know, I've been traveling a lot and it was just really happy to see a bird from home. I didn't know what he was doing there. And uh, I was talking to one of the other guests about these swans. Black swans, as you know, are slightly smaller than the classic European uh, trumpeter swans, your white swans. Um, anyway, the the ornery bastard uh, thought we got too close, just lit up. And next thing, I just got this feathered diva hissing and flying at me through the reeds. Um, obviously not a newbie to this. I had a pair of fancy uh, flip-flops on. I think they're made of leather. Off comes the, um, off comes the, the, the flip-flop. And the next minute, having waxed lyrical about the beauty of, uh, of these uh, dark birds, I'm slapping the shit out of this swan with my flip-flop. <laughs> and uh, John Cleese happens to be coming out of the hotel that time sees me he knows who i am through the group so he knows i'm a conservationist and but there i am beating up a rare bird um by the deck chairs and he's sort of what are you doing and a great friendship uh emerged from that unlikely moment so the backstory is i met one of my heroes not because i was chasing a hollywood connection but because i was trying to save animals from extinction and because i knew how to defend myself from an angry swan uh one of the things I meant when I got my first movie at my only movie to this point, although I do have something else in the works now, um, I remember going to him and asking him for advice. I said, what do you wish you knew when you started out? And he said to me, he said, never forget that the producers running the project don't know a damn thing. They don't know anything. They're guessing. They're idiots. Don't ever believe them and don't ever assume they know what they're doing. And it was such great advice because it put the weight, instead of trying to just shove it off my own shoulders onto someone else's shoulders, I kept it there and maintained my passion throughout the project and made sure I held everyone accountable because I know they're doing their best. I know they probably know more than I do, but it's such a big project with so many moving pieces that no one ever really knows exactly what the right thing to do is. And so if you can lend your intellect and your passion, you know, put your shoulder to the mountain, as it were. That's how you you keep projects going in the right direction. Don't ever surrender your creative interest in the project, even though by definition you don't have creative control. So, um, just want to mention before we close housekeeping that, uh, as you know, you can now through popular request demand. We've got uh, semi-indestructible T-shirts, Bushmaster, the Bushmaster Credo available on my threadless account the link is below on the youtube channel you can also find it on my instagram page my handle of course is at tasmanian underscore grizzly <clears throat> excuse me hey guys if you're enjoying whoops guys if you like the wild times check us out on patreon we put out four extra podcasts per month that's one commute a week that you're just going to be laughing and learning the whole time in the car <laughs> hey let me do, do something else this is the late night content and stuff that we we can't show on on youtube because they'll kick us off youtube it's the cinemax of podcasts <laughs> uncensored raw dog it's the cinemax of podcasts check it out link right here so if i look like crap today it's because i feel like crap my back injury is flared up and um unfortunately the the procedures i've had so far isn't going to work so in a couple of days i'm going to go back under the knife I'm just going to make the assumption you all wish me well. 
Um, but I wanted to get this episode out, um, even though I spent the week sort of gagging and puking and, and, and crying into my oatmeal, because so many people have asked me how to get into filmmaking and, and how to get into television. So what I want to do today is I want to talk about the six uh, main projects that got me into this and explain how I got here. And hopefully you'll derive some inspiration and some uh, clarification of how it's done. There's no direct route to getting in Hollywood. There just isn't. There is a direct way to fail. And that is to do what everybody else does. And just assume that if you're energetic and ambitious and good looking and whatever else, and you smell like fresh baked bread, um, you know, you'll make it. It just won't. Uh, Hollywood is absolutely full of good-looking losers who think that if they could just be discovered or go to the right party, they're going to break in. They never will. They never will. It is a grind. Like every other discipline, it is a grind. And you have to revel in that grind and enjoy it. And as I said earlier, maintain the pace. Forget about the objective. Just keep grinding toward it. Forget about how long it takes, and you'll eventually get there. But one of the easiest ways to get there is to have achievements separate to what you're aiming to do. So having accomplished something, whether it's a degree in some special field, but more specifically, you've created content by virtue of your research or something else. Anyway, I'll uh, I'll explain. So uh, if you see me grimace a little bit, it's just my back. It's bugging, as I said. So but don't worry. In a couple of days, back under the knife, and I'll be chirping and farting like the Berlin uh, Philharmonic before you know it. So the first break I had when I got here, I was out here consulting for uh, Walt Disney Imagineering. As most of you know, uh, my background's a little unusual, obviously elite military, paratrooper, airborne, bunch of qualifications uh, about uh, delivering mass violence to the uh, those who deserve it. A background in zoology, written a number of books on biodiversity, done a lot of work in the field and conservation. I also was a graduate of the Russian space program, uh, and I've sold 30 million books. So I had this interesting background in the arts, uh, space, the military, and in wildlife. That got the attention of Walt Disney Imagineering, and they make all the roller coasters and cool rides and theme parks and hotels and so on and so forth. Um, an unfortunate situation had occurred in that my I'd made a terrible personal error. I had unlocked a gate at my farm in Tasmania in order to go into town for lunch. I do this every week. My New York Times Sunday edition would arrive on a Wednesday. I'd go pick it up from the post office, and then I would go in and have a, a, a sort of a dare I say, a brunch, a solo brunch and read the paper. On this day, I left the gate open. My dogs, my three Great Danes got out, killed my neighbor's sheep, a large number of them, declared dangerous and put down. Now, I didn't have a, a girlfriend at the time and uh, certainly wasn't married. And so I, that was my whole family with those three dogs. And, um, you know, when that happened, I, I just felt like I let down my family. It was an enormous blow. I suffered from depression. Uh, I went and got treatment for it. And I just didn't feel like staying on the farm for a while. I didn't feel like writing books for a while. So I had this invitation to come over to Los Angeles to consult with Walt Disney Imagineering for four years. They've been asking four years. I'm like, ah, I don't want to go to LA. I'm a country boy. I'm a mountain man. What am I going to do over there? And suddenly I had reasons not to want to be at home. And I thought I can be unhappy anywhere. Why don't I try to change the weather? by going somewhere else and facing new challenges. And I had a great time. I had a great time. I primarily worked on the uh, Disney Animal Kingdom portfolio, among others. Uh, I enjoyed it so much as their uh, 
their executive creative consultant in residence. But after my first term, I agreed to go to a second. And after the second, I agreed to go to a third. And I'm glad I did because halfway through my third term, I literally ran into the woman who's now my beautiful wife and the mother of our two amazing children. Happy story. The point is I never expected to be in Los Angeles. And while I was there, Chelsea Handler, the uh, famous comedian who at that point uh, was the only female host of a late night show uh, called Chelsea Lately. She had been dating this hunky Canadian wildlife guy and then they broke up and she hated him and she got him, threw him off the show. He used to be their regular wildlife presenter and come in once a month and bring some animals to amuse her and she cracked jokes. It was a lot of fun. But she dumped him and she dumped him off the show looking for somebody else. Her main producer at that time, a woman called Siobhan Shonda, called around and also the show was relocating to uh, the Universal Stage Number 1, which is where the late night show was uh, when Conan had it, but it got moved back to the New York for, uh, for Jimmy Fallon. So this beautiful stage at Universal Studios was going to be their new location for this show. And they're looking for, in her words, someone who had more credibility in the wildlife conservation space, uh, someone who had a deeper knowledge of animals and ecosystems, and, and this was important, someone that Chelsea Handler would not want to have sex with. Okay. <laughs> Thank you very much. Um, anyway, she called Betty White because Hollywood is dysfunctional, and they just assume that stars know everything. They called Betty White. And Betty White, I knew through conservation circles. If you don't know, Betty White did enormous amount of work for wildlife conservation and for, uh, you know, I wouldn't say animal rights, but animal welfare in general. Uh, she was just an amazing ambassador for animals and committed money to, to scientific programs to help quality of life of, of animals in captivity, be they domestic pets or livestock or whatever. So we knew each other from wildlife circles. We didn't obviously move in Hollywood circles. And she called LA Zoo. And LA Zoo, Mike D, uh, the curator there for 30-something years, dear friend of mine, he passed away. I, he was the chap whose snake hook I carried in his memory on Little Giants. And he said, oh, BTG's in town. Uh, you should get him. And that was it. So <laughs> Star gets rid of a boyfriend. She calls her main producer, Siobhan Shonda. She calls Betty White. Betty White's called Mike D. Mike D mentions me, and suddenly I have an interview. Now, I'm not looking to be on television. Uh, the face tells the story. Okay, this is this is a joyously punchable and resilient face, um, uh, not a face that you put on a, on a packet of Wheaties or you put on a television show. But I had the opportunity, so I went to hell with it. I'll go. So I borrowed a friend's uh, veiled chameleon. I talked about how the hydrostatic tongue, uh, how it actually the structure was not dissimilar to a mammalian uh, mammalian penis. And they were, we had a good laugh, and that was it. I got the gig. Now, I wasn't perfect on day one. I was a bit rough and silly, but we got better and did about half a dozen performances. And the next thing you know, I got the call from the big league. CBS asked me to come over and to go on to the Late Late Show with Craig Ferguson, which was an amazing opportunity. Um, sadly, he left his show after that. It was a big late night reshuffle, and so did Chelsea, and that was that. But by saying yes to something out of left field, it put me on the map. Now, I've been trying to sell TV shows, not starring me, but just TV shows in general uh, for some time prior to that. But I was an unknown. I wasn't an American. I was older. I looked like I'd been run over by a truck, which I have. Um, so 
I wasn't going to get in by being the next slim-hipped and beautiful young thing. I had to get in on the basis that I knew something and had a way of communicating something that other people didn't have. I had experience um, that was accessible in an entertaining fashion. That's how I could break it. Everybody has a different path, but that was mine. I wasn't going to get a ticket unless I brought something different to the table because I just wasn't pretty enough. End of story. Wasn't young enough. Wasn't American enough. So what's interesting is prior to that moment, I had actually sold my first TV show in about, oh, it took me two weeks. It was nothing. And I couldn't understand what people went on about. I sold it to Lionsgate. It was called Adventure Story. And basically it was a series about failed explorers going back to this heroic age where these guys were trying to discover extraordinary things. And now in hindsight, kind of asinine things, incredible tales of adventure and daring do but all that ended horribly and it was a sort of comedy adventure type thing that I love. I still love to make it. I sold it to Lionsgate in like five minutes and it was the worst deal I ever did. The show never actually got made. Um, I thought I was going to make a lot of money. I made nothing. And they locked me up and this tip for young players. They wanted to lock up exclusivity for two years. So for two entire years, even though they didn't make my show and didn't pay me any money, because cash-free advances are very normal in unscripted or non-fiction type projects. Uh, I couldn't do anything else in the space. I couldn't have done this podcast. I couldn't have technically written books. I couldn't have done any wildlife shows. It was insane. So I got burnt badly and put that behind me when I got the offer to go on Chelsea Lately. Uh, so that was an important education for me. But anyway, I'm pitching these shows. Nobody wants them. Now I'm on a late night show regularly. People are interested. Then I get to my first big project, Fear Island, Fortress of the Bears. As I mentioned in previous episodes, I hated being in LA. I still don't love it, even though I appreciate the opportunities that are here and some of the incredibly talented people that are all around me. So what I would do is when my wife was out building hotels in the side of the world, she'd go away for a week or so every month, sometimes two weeks, every two months. I wouldn't stay in LA on my own. I'd get on a plane and go to Alaska. And that's when I started researching the bears of Kutznewood, the giant Kutznewood brown bears. And over the years, built this great relationship with the Klingit people to the degree that I ended up being adopted by the Dachitan clan and given a name, which was the greatest honor of my life. Um, and that became the basis of my first major project in Hollywood beyond these TV appearances. And so what happened then is I brought back this evidence of what I believe was a new subspecies of, of Alaskan coastal brown bear. And I presented it to Pam Welsh over at Discovery and she was just all about it. And she took it into the mix. And I think over the course of two or three years, I sold over a dozen different shows to Discovery, none of which had got made. And I didn't realize that was how it is. You know, in publishing, you sell a book, you write the book, the book gets published. But in TV, you might sell a show. It doesn't mean it gets made. Same with movies, especially with movies. So she takes it up the, the chain and doesn't get any interest. I'm like, oh, I don't know. I had an agent by then, and the agent sent it to one of their production companies that they worked with. And they reworked it and brought it back. Still the same idea. Now, it started as this very big idea. Let's map the dispersal of the giant uh, brown bears throughout Europe, Eurasia, and into the Americas after the last ice age. And then it became, let's just do the giant American bears. And then it was just find us the biggest bear ever. <laughs> it's very reductionist. And so that's what the show became, but they fell in love with it. And here's the best part. 
when we finally got to do it, um, when we finally got to make the show and they brought back, you know, the dailies, you know, the, some of the early footage, the rough cut and sent it back to discovery. These other guys who had bought the show from the production company, not from me, um, called Pam Welch and said, Hey, you've got to see this guy, BTG. He's, he's amazing. Uh, the bears are incredible. You, this Island, it's, it's unbelievable. You've got to see this. And to her credit, she went, fuck you guys. I bought it to you two years ago and you didn't care. <laughs> so don't even tell me about it now. And that is the insight I want to share about this because I had the information. It was all correct. I had the exclusive access. That's how I got into the deal. I had the, I had the knowledge. So I wrote my own ticket to get on this show, but I couldn't get it made until I partnered with a production company that the channel knew and trusted. They don't know me. I'm just a guy off the street. Uh, yeah, I smell like I know something about bears. Doesn't mean that they should put me on TV. And here's the other thing. They didn't even let me host the show. No, again, for all the reasons I said before, they were going against big guys with beards because that was everybody on Discovery Channel at the time. And they had a, a, a briefly, uh, a, a, the new president of the network was there for like five minutes. I don't know where he came from, but he just wanted slim to hip mincers with no beards. And that's great. That's great. If you can get those little young nymphs to host a wildlife show and know something about bears, that's terrific. Get out there. But I look like someone who does what I do. That's the reverse. I do what I do, which is why I look how I do. So I couldn't change the way I looked. I couldn't be younger. I couldn't be more American. I am who I am. And they didn't want that. And they tried to replace, they did replace me with someone else. And then the scheduling, it's infuriating in Hollywood. They say, we want this, we're going to do it. And then they don't give you the green light. They don't give you the green light. And it drags on and drags on. And that's tough for wildlife shows because you have a seasonality aspect that's very important. Animal behaviors are affected by the seasons. Now, you go too early, there's no bears down by the coast because they're all up in the forest, all right? You go too late. And it's the red wedding scene from Game of Thrones because they're desperate to put on those final pounds prior to hibernation. And they're killing everything in sight. So you've got to go at the right time when the bears are full enough to be a little ambivalent uh, and they're visible. Um, there's no sort of desperate competition. There's a fine window and it's towards the end of summer, but not too far into autumn is the best time for brown bears. Anyway, they left it till it was right on the danger line before we went. And because they delayed and delayed, the host they chose couldn't the dates couldn't line up for them. They had a backup host from the UK who was younger, no beard, slim little guy, looked friendly, looked like the kind of guy you'd see at Starbucks writing a screenplay. Lovely guy, hosted a kid's show, and then he couldn't get a visa. So I'm on the flight. I think we covered this in a previous pod with uh, DeLuca. I'm on a flight, the advance party, which is myself and my Klingit brother, Alvin Johnson, and we're going to lay out all the trail cams all the wildlife camera traps for a couple of weeks prior to the rest of the crew arriving to get some footage in the can. I'm on my way to Alaska. I run into the producer at Seattle airport and he tells me that this guy isn't coming and the show is being canceled. I know he's pulling my leg because there's no way he would get out of bed and get on a plane um, to, to see me there. If there was no show, <laughs> he could not do it. And then that was it. That's how I got the show. So I didn't even get the chance to host the show until it fell back in my lap when everybody else got pulled out. Then they brought in Johnny Inches, who was a veteran of, of travel shows, to be my my uh, my sidekick or my co-host, so that we had uh, some experience there. And I had to prove to them that I knew what I was doing and win my spurs again. Anyway, a lot of lessons to be drawn from that. But 
the big one for me was humility. I was speaking to a friend of mine who's made a lot of television. I said, I was so bummed. I was the only one with the expert knowledge. I was the only one that was accepted by the Klingit. I knew this country. I knew these bears. Why wouldn't you put me on air? And he said, don't worry about it. He said, it's annoying, but take the producer credit, get the show up. And that's a stepping stone to a future project. And so I went from not wanting to accept the offer to accepting the offer and humbling myself. And in the end, I got the job that I wanted. It fell back in my lap just by making sure I, I kept in the game by saying yes and sucking it up, you know, cinching up the belt on my pride, as it were. So Hollywood is all sort of full of little cunning machinations, right? And Fear Island was structured in a way that if it was a success, and it was a success, as you'll recall, it was the number one show during Monster Week on Discovery. So it won all the ratings awards. They loved it. They structured the deal in a clever way that I'd never heard of. Called a, it's called a backdoor pilot clause. And that is, if the show is popular, uh, if the documentary was popular, oh, no, it wasn't a standalone two-hour documentary. It was a pilot for an upcoming TV series. Now, I was thrilled. Didn't know about this. And the structure of the deal meant I wouldn't get paid anymore, which was weird. But they wanted more from me. From not wanting me at all, now they want more. And that was incredibly flattering. So they wanted me to do uh, a TV series based on the same premise of Fear Island, which was that there are ancient genetic anomalies, often concentrated around the Ice Age, uh, and we can find these giant animals all over the world that have these interesting genetic histories. So let's go to the remote places, find them, get their DNA tested, and tell their story. Loved it. So I was looking for all these gigantic animals, lost the time, came up with an incredible wish list that I was absolutely thrilled about. In that time, this happens in Hollywood, roughly every two to three years, there was a purge, an executive purge. And suddenly, slim-tipped uh, executives are screaming uh, on their way to various salad bars uh, and uh, cappuccino martini bars all through Hollywood. Um, everyone's out of a job, new regime in, and they just change culture just like that. So they didn't want big, scary, dangerous, which is what I was doing and love doing. Now they want cute, fluffy family. So just boom, completely turn the dial around. So we had this series called uh, Chasing Giants. And... So we did, I think, 40-something, uh, I wouldn't call them pilots because we didn't film anything new, but they're 40-something sizzles, proof of concept. And they kept asking for changes, make it more about conservation, make it more about uh, the ecology, make it more about the... Anyway, in the end, they said, no, we don't want big and scary. We want fluffy and family-friendly. Can you do something else? So we changed it from Chasing Giants to Little Giants, and that was the show on Animal Planet where we went around the world finding tiny little animals with amazing abilities and showing how that scaled up. They were far more impressive than the epic monsters that we are in thrall of today. So, you know, a mouse lemur has a far greater bite force and individual muscle power, particularly in the hands and legs than a gorilla, for example. Now, of course, the math doesn't quite scale up in real life like that, but you get the idea. Halfway through that show, things start to change. A few new people come in, they went, ah, it's too fluffy, too friendly. Can you get more dangerous things? So now we're adding venomous animals. And it was just so funny, these cultural shifts, because as John Cleese said, no one knows anything. I think William Goldman said that as well. If you don't want to read great, funny, nonfiction account from one of the best screenwriters of all time, Adventures in the Screen Trade and What Lies Did I Tell, um, William Goldman, read those books. They're very funny. Tells you a lot about the Hollywood mentality. And the essence of it is no one knows, everyone's guessing, we're just doing the best we can, 
if anyone tells you they know what to do, they're lying. So anyway, that show came out and halfway through the series, I mean, people loved it. Uh, it went on really late at night, even though it was designed for younger viewers. It did okay. Uh, we did 20 episodes, which was a lot, um, but it didn't open the doors that we'd hoped and didn't get renewed for a second season. And that's, that's life. But that's how Fear Island led to Little Giants in a very strange way, past Chasing Giants, which never got made. So from there, uh, we, there was three other projects that, that came up and they're all quite different and they all have different takeaways that are relevant. Um, and just to recap, Late Night Show came out of nowhere. I had the opportunity because I had already established a, a very strong reputation in wildlife conservation all around the world. That's how I got my shot in Hollywood was because I'd achieved something of significance outside of Hollywood. Fear Island was the same. I'd done all the work. I was the expert. I was the contact with the Klingit people. I was trusted by them. I had unique access. That's how I got this ugly mug on television, by doing that work. And that's a path for many of you. Okay, If you're hearing this and you're doing field work and you're making discoveries um, and you're making connections with Indigenous people and they trust you and you've earned that trust and their respect, you have something of value that goes beyond what you've put on paper. You now have access that could be your ticket to get a project up off the ground. And if you haven't done that work, then you're just another pretty face queuing like cattle. Good luck with that. Okay, from there, a um, number of the projects you've probably seen me do um, it was Animal Planet and others, uh, Nature's Greatest Mystery Solved. That was just a phone call. Now I've had some success. People say, can you come and do this? Of course, I would love to. Um, it was a great team on that project, this British team. I really enjoyed working with them. Hey, Brosters, thank you for being loyal subscribers. We appreciate everything that you do. And now we have a membership offer for you. I think you can get ad-free episodes, I heard. That's pretty big. Ad-free is big, but you can also get your comments looked at so we don't have to sift through the millions. How do you do that? There. Is there some sort of badge system? There's a badge system, <laughs> a loyalty badge. Boom. Shows up next to your name in the comments. Boom. Oh, we man. read the comment. All this badge talks. Make, I'm going to the badge store. He's going to You're get a badger. badger. He's going he's gonna to buy one. Didn't earn it. He's going to buy one. He did a fake leave. <laughs> well, I assumed Kyle would know to cut on the motion. <laughs> All right, let's cut now. That's that's our ad. Adventure Beast, which is the sponsor of this show, that was interesting because I had developed that with a friend of mine, and it was called Beastify. It was a kid's show. Uh, and I had all the agents and everybody else just couldn't. Everyone loved it. It did a nice little sizzle. It was a huge hit at, uh, at, uh, trying to think of it, at Kid Screen, which is a major conference, sales conference for animation. We got all sorts of rubbish offers from various online networks uh, who, I mean, some of these deals are crazy. They want you to do, pay for the whole, cost millions of dollars, take the bank loan out for many millions of dollars, and then they'll pay you at the end, you know, in advertising revenue or clicks. I mean, it's, I get the survival model, but it's insane. Most of us smaller filmmakers, we cannot possibly afford to take on that kind of risk. I mean, to risk more than your house. Um, so anyway, nothing, nothing jumped out. And then it was eight years later, my then agent was having lunch with someone from Netflix. And he just in passing, listening to what they were talking for. And he said, you know what? We represent BTG and he has this unusual animated project. I'm not exactly sure how it fits, but it's strange and it moves a needle. Maybe you should have a look at it. Now that was Friday. And they asked to send over what you have. We sent over the sizzle document. Um, on Saturday, 
he called and said, send over, send over some more information about this guy. They sent that over on Saturday. On Sunday, he called and said, can he come in a meeting on Monday? Eight years of nothing. And it was all done in a weekend. Timing. You can't predict it. You just got to be ready. You can't have spent your entire life working on one thing, hoping that it's the lottery ticket that'll change your life. You can't do that. You've got to be ready to go when you get the call. And, you know, in the power, the green light goes on, you step out the door. You're already dressed for battle. Go do the thing. Um, as they say, you want to be a gunfighter, you got to walk in the street. So you've got to be ready to go, but you cannot know when that's going to happen. Now, that just, all the work was done, but nothing but, People saying they love it, but they don't want to do it for years. And then finally, bang, in the course of three days, everything changed. Worked with some wonderful people, particularly the, the team at Mission Control. Um, had a great time. Netflix was terrific. It was an unusual project to go through the unscripted side because it's a factual nature show. It just happens to be animation and comedy. But that was a very strange thing. But that's Hollywood in a nutshell. You don't know when you're going to get the call. You just got to be ready with projects. And... You can't just have one. You need many, many good projects that you're passionate about. So when the opportunity comes up and they say, we love this, but we need something in this space, you might have something in that space. And it can literally come out of seemingly nowhere. But it's, you know, as they say, it's just one of those situations where your prior preparation has created the opportunity for yourself. Um, the other big thing that I did was the movie Penguin Bloom. Very proud of it. You can also watch that worldwide on Netflix if you so desire. It's a weepy. You cry your face off, have some tissues handy, handy and uh, enjoy it. It's a true story. Now, that is based on a book that I wrote. Again, it's available in most places. It's called Penguin the Magpie in the US. It's called Penguin Bloom everywhere else. Uh, it's a beautiful true story about a family from Australia who suffer a devastating family tragedy. And the clever twist in the book, it's very visual, features the incredible photographs of the Australian photographer Cameron Bloom. The twist in the book is that I've used this injured wild magpie, this injured bird, as a vessel for the story of a broken woman, a, a woman who, who ends up paralyzed and how she copes with this tragedy and tries to, you know, move on with her life as best she can. And in rescuing this injured little bird and nursing it back to health, before her accident, she was a, uh, a, a neurological nurse. And she is able to at least beat her depression and take hold of life again with both hands. So it was a beautiful book. It was well-received. It did well. I knew it was cinematic, but I had a very clear vision. The family and I agreed that we really wanted the actress Naomi Watts to play the mother, Sam Bloom. That's a big ask. I don't know how much time you think I spend uh, sipping brightly colored drinks with Naomi Watts, but the answer is no time. I've never met her. I've been obviously great admirer of hers. I think she's an incredible actress. More than that, I think she's an emotional athlete. I mean, she takes on the kind of roles that physically and emotionally are incredibly difficult. Think about the gymnastic work and the emotional work that she did with a green screen for uh, The Impossible or for King Kong. I mean, it's ridiculous the way she'll push herself. Mulholland Drive. I mean, she pushes herself to the limits. Um, she looked a little bit like Sam Bloom, but it was her ability to just convey powerful emotions through physical behaviors, which would be necessary to play the part of a woman who was both before the accident, able-bodied, and after the accident, a paraplegic. So we set out this goal. 
I had fancy Hollywood agents then, and I said, this is, you know, who I want to play the leading role. And this is who I'd like to play her husband. And, I, you know, she's worked with him before. I think she would enjoy it. They said, no problem. They sent it out. Well, the actor that we want to play the husband got him back and said, yeah, I'd love to do this. But Naomi Watts didn't. Didn't get through to her at all. And I didn't know this, but it turns out she just made a movie with this other guy and she didn't want to work with him again. Not she didn't like him. She just didn't want to do another movie straight away. And so it came down to making choices. And this is a big part of filmmaking. You don't always get exactly who you want. You can still get someone wonderful. You know, it's not like it's a, a lesser choice. It's just a different choice. So in his case, you know, if, if the lead actress that we so desperately wanted to play the lead, if Sam Bloom didn't want to do it, uh, if he was in it, then he's not going to be in it. Um, then we had other people who were amazing who wanted to come in and do it. Hugh Jackman wanted to play the father, but he was just launching his international uh, song and dance tour, stadiums all over the world. He wasn't going to be there. So that was a shame because he would have been huge star power. We had lots of different people and then thrilled, thrilled, uh, you know, who we ended up getting. I'll tell you about that in a second. But the point is, I spent 12 months trying to get, and I got other offers for the book. Some were from good people, some were from complete frauds who had no business pretending to be movie producers. Um, but at least I knew enough about the game at that point to filter out those idiots and to focus on the genuine powerhouses uh, who were trying to make this, want to make this movie. And I considered all their offers. But I wasn't doing anything until I could get this to Naomi Watts. So what did I do? After my agents failed um, and I didn't know her, I just started thinking, how can I possibly get to her? And it occurred to me, again, through wildlife conservation, the former director of Taronga Zoo in Sydney, Ryan the governor, and he's a dear friend, he's a great man, his daughter works in movies, and she was a very close friend of Naomi Watts. So I called her up, and she was over in LA at the time, and I was just very honest. I didn't bullshit her, I didn't weasel. I just said, look, I've written this book, it's gonna be a beautiful film dream come true would be that Naomi Watts would play the lead, play the mother, Sam Bloom. I would like to use you to get to her. Would you come and join me for breakfast? Give you a copy of the book, tell you about it. If you like it, pass it along to her. And it was one of those situations where it all aligned. We went out and had brunch again. I'm not ashamed of it. Don't brunch shame me. I love brunch. Okay. It's the king of breakfasts and lunches. It's the best. Um, we had a wonderful brunch and told her about the book, showed her the book. She thought it was beautiful. She promised she'd send it to Naomi. She did that. And again, it was within 48 hours, Naomi not only wanted to play the leading role, but she also wanted to, to co-produce the film. And that was it. Suddenly, everybody wanted to be on board. Reese Witherspoon wanted to make it. Um, everything just fell in because now we had an A-list star uh, and everyone felt comfortable. Again, I'm a nobody. Yeah, I've written some books. That's great. Um, you can hit me in the head with a hammer and it won't change anything. But I'm, why should you trust a multi-million dollar movie to me? But to Naomi Watts, Reese Witherspoon, all these people, yes, 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 you absolutely should. That's a lesson that stuck with me. You know, I was very fortunate to have that connection, strange connection through the Zoo Mafia to get to Naomi Watts and thrilled that she fell in love with the book and so did her children and she wanted to make the movie. But it is about aligning yourself with accomplished, talented people who have built reputations that we should all aspire to. And through their greatness, you get dragged along 
in their glittering vortex towards victory. Uh, that's how that film got made. Now, it was a whole process getting it made and the, the rewrites and the editing and the blah, 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 blah. It's a beautiful film. It's a true story. I love the book, obviously. The film is a beautiful adaptation of the book, uh, Penguin Bloom. If you get a chance to watch it on Netflix, do so. Great family film. Very uplifting, even though you will cry a lot. I've seen it about nine times. I cry every time. I'm not ashamed of it. Um, obviously, I know and love the actual family, the Bloom family. I think of them as my own family. Um, but it's a powerful true story about the connection between uh, nature and and how nature can help us break through suffering and, the lim and physical limitation. So that was how Penguin Bloom got made. And it was very interesting. From My next project uh, will be a similar model, you know. I did the work, I wrote the book, I had the content to sell. By having had success in publishing, I had some leverage and I had some access, but still wasn't enough. And I needed to think create creatively all the time about how to advance a project without losing control and not to get lazy or greedy and to take whatever money was thrown my way initially uh, by someone who I didn't want to work with. And my policy on working with people has always been the same. If I wouldn't be prepared to invite you to my home for dinner, that I'm not going to sign any of my work to you, period. Okay. I'm just not going to, because when you write a book or you prepare a documentary or you work in the field, that is your life. You have invested your life. Time is life. I've invested years of my life in this project. And I'm not giving it to you for filthy lucre. It has to be a creative partnership that I'll be proud of. And of course, I couldn't be more proud uh, to work with, uh, Naomi Watts, and it was a joy to watch her on set. My daughter was born uh, just before the movie actually started filming. We got some delays because of COVID and other things. And so uh, I was only able to go for about 10 days, two weeks, the actual movie set, because I didn't want to be away from my my daughter and my, and my beautiful wife. Um, it was a joy to be there. And in the end, oh, dream come true, Andrew Lincoln from The Walking Dead played the husband, uh, Cameron Bloom. And he was just magnificent. And that's just what happens. You know, yeah, we thought we wanted this. We didn't get that. But to get Andrew Lincoln. And one of the things that impressed me is before every take of every scene, he does a verbal recap of the previous scene in the movie. Even though the other actors are not there, he does that, his scene, and then starts the new scene so that he is mentally exactly in the space he needs to be for the new scene. I'd never seen anybody else do that. And he did it every time for every take, even though he was delivering different energy for the new takes, he did it every single time. And that professionalism, that commitment just brought the standard of the film so high. Uh, so yeah, what a cast, you know, Naomi Watts, Andrew Lincoln, uh, Jackie Weaver, uh, just Rachel House. I mean, I love Rachel House. He's a, just a Kiwi goddess, love her. So many incredible actors uh, and, you know, it was just a beautiful film and I'm very proud of it, but it didn't get up in any conventional way. If I hadn't of, and this is a recap of everything, if I hadn't already established my bona fides in publishing as a successful author in the field, as a successful wildlife conservationist and field zoologist, if I didn't have these other credentials and have built a reputation and had contacts in those fields, I would never have gotten into Hollywood. And I sure as shit didn't turn up at a talent agency and say, hey, I'm pretty, please put me in a show. 
that's never going to happen. That opportunity does not exist. So to all of you out there who want to know how you can get into television and film, particularly in the wildlife space, think about what worked for me and see if it can apply to you. Are you doing interesting work where you create the content? You've written a book, you've written a paper, you've written an article that got attention. Do you have content that's uniquely yours? Do you have unique accents, access to, a, to an ecosystem, to a, to a region? Do you have a unique connection with indigenous people who want to work with you on something? If you have these things, you have written yourself a ticket to get to the next level. And then how you handle that project will open doors to the next one. And it is hard every time, unless you're a megastar, unless you're Naomi Watts or Tom Cruise or whatever, and they're just throwing movies at you constantly. If you're, you know, if you're Leonardo DiCaprio or whatever, they're throwing movies at him and he gets to pick and choose. That's not the rest of us. The rest of us are are all of a twisting. Please, 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 sir, can I do another one? That's reality. It is a grind every time. And, and if you take that on board, and as I said, revel in the grind. Don't care about the destination other than you know you're going there, but maintain your pace. Don't care about how long it takes or how hard it is. You just maintain your pace. The distance will be put behind you before you know it, you'll be there. Now, I promise to answer some questions at the end of this. I'm going to do that. So I'm going to allow Kyle to put his pretty jowls on the screen. Briefly, Kyle. I don't want to see too much of you. Yep, um, here for a sec. And uh, okay, what questions do we have from the Bushmasters and how can I help? Yep. So of clearly there's tons of questions and you covered most of them in depth, but there's a, there is a handful that, uh, that uh, did not get uh, covered. So first um, just, you know, you talked a little bit about your expertise and you had these special connections to, you know, the Klingit and in Alaska and those types of things for your other projects. How did you choose the subjects for those? And how did you come to, is a lot of research? Is it just personal preference? You know, Talk about that a little bit. Sure. Um, okay. So, well, first thing is that, as I mentioned, Fear Island came about because of the unique expertise and unique access that I have, but I couldn't convince them on my own. I had to go to a middleman. I needed a production company that they knew and respected. So instead of thinking about pitching the networks, you pitch the production companies. And then if they love it, they might restructure it a little bit because they have knowledge of what the networks want more than you do. That's just reality. And um, they'll help you get it made because now you're riding in on their coattails, their reputation. And that's a great privilege. Um, yeah, you don't get as much money. You share the pot. You, you might get a junior producer slice of it plus your talent fee. That's okay. Um, but that's really important to respect the expertise that they have. And obviously, you've done your homework. You see the work they've done. You like to work with them. You think they're good people. That goes without saying. The point thing was... Fear Island, Fortress of the Bears, and Fear Island comes, of course, the Russian Ostrov uh, Kutsnoi, Island of Fear from the uh, Promyshleneki and uh, Fortress of the Bears, Kutsnoi, that's what it literally means in Klingit. So they're just repeating the name of the place twice. Now, in terms of subject matter, from the next show, as I mentioned, Little Giants was, in its own strange way, a direct spin-off of Fear Island, Fortress of the Bears. So that was the network saying, we love this, we want more of that, but then they, you know, it's, I don't, I mean, networks are by design schizophrenic, okay, because they're changing all the time, they're trying to chase an audience that may or may not exist, and they say, this didn't work, let's try that, okay, we didn't work with giant man-eating sharks, let's do fluffy puppies, 
that didn't work. Let's do poisonous. Let's do let's do poisonous mushrooms. Let's do venomous snakes. Let's do. They're trying everything. Okay, it's monkeys with darts. That's what it is. So that was a direct spinoff. Now, um, Adventure Base was is as you know for those that have seen. It, if you haven't seen it, go to Netflix and watch it. It's a really fun, different wildlife comedy show, obviously on Netflix. But Adventure Base is semi autobiographical. And a friend came up and said, "Hey, you do all these crazy adventures. We should use that as the basis of a show." And I'm like, "Yeah, I'd love to do that." And I just started sitting down and working with people to try to make that happen. Now it changes a lot. You go in with a clear vision and then someone with experience who you respect adds to that. So in this case, like for example, that Netflix had opinions, um, you know, Michael and Dwight from Mission Control and Brent, they had opinions, all good opinions. Brian Frangie, uh, the, the, the showrunner and head writer, and you change it and it gradually evolves into something that can be quite different in the end. So you have to remember that this is not, this notion of the auteur, the author as filmmaker, is complete bullshit. Even an author as an author of books is bullshit. Yeah, I don't, I don't chew up the, uh, the 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 wood pulp and make the paper. I don't suck the ink out of a quivering squid um, to print the text. There's so many people involved. Even if you write every word, you still have copy editors uh, correcting typos and so forth. It is a collaborative effort. Everything big and worthwhile in publishing television and film as a collaborative effort. So that being the case, you cannot go in there and be rigid as to how it's going to look and feel until the end. So you go in there with a clever idea, you go in there with unique IP, intellectual property, something that you wrote, you created, access that you own, and knowledge that you have that no one else have. They have to have you, okay? They may not wanna have you, but now they have to because you're, the you're the keys to the kingdom. They have to have you. And you do your best. You do your best to be the best possible person. You don't complain ever. You don't whine. You don't ask for comforts. You suck it up and be grateful to be at the table. And if you can do that, you'll get another shot. But along the way, the projects will take different shape until finally, as I said, Beastify, a, a, a wacky kid show that was a little bit like Shazam. You know, Beastify. And then this guy puts on this cut. It's gone. Now it's adventure based, and now it's an, it's very clearly an autobiographical comedy about my passion for wildlife, and it's structured in a way that's meant to be an education show, but mainly it's just a funny comedy adventure that showcases some of the animals and some of the adventures that made me who I am. So that was out there, and because it wasn't the direct extension extension of a successful program, and that's the thing. The dream is that every TV show you make is going to get renewed forever. But a lot of the best TV shows don't. And the ones that are so-so. And mine have always been kind of like, yeah, they did well. But they're not the biggest hit on TV. They're just not. And they're expensive to make. I get a fly around the world and, and punch snakes in the face. It doesn't come cheap. So I have yet to have a project other than Penguin Bloom, which is well, but now people are interested in my next book for a movie. But other than that, I've never had a, sh a series get renewed. I've had shows not get renewed. Little Giants didn't get renewed. Uh, just like Forrest's um, Extinct Our Lives, such a great show, didn't get renewed. That's the fickle nature of schizophrenic networks. Just got to shrug that crap off because it's not a judgment of you. It's just how the industry works. Your job is to be um, indefatigable and to continue to bring new ideas. You can never suffer from creative poverty. You've got to go, okay, that's fine. Didn't like it. I'll do another one. Didn't like it. I'll do another one. And you do that 
until you have the kind of success that you want. Now, look at um, look at Bear Grylls. He did a bunch of cheesy adventure shows and stuff beforehand. No one remembers them. What they remember is Man versus Wild. It was only a slight adjustment of what he was doing before, but it was a terrific show, terrific concept, and it just caught on in a massive way. That was not his first effort. It's just the first one that the public fell in love with. And that's all of us. Keep doing it because you don't know what project is going to be your next big hit. You just have no idea. So you just got to stay in the game. And the big part of that is always saying yes to new adventures and new challenges. So when Queer Planet was being made, and that comes out on Peacock uh, next year, Queer Planet is a documentary about, about animal sexuality and diversity. It's a fascinating subject that I talk about quite a lot on this show. And I heard they were doing it. I knew one of the producers on it. And I just said, I've got to be on that on the documentary. I'm one of those experts. You definitely have to have me. And they're like, oh, we don't have the budget and blah, blah, blah. And I said, I'll do it for nothing. I'll do it for nothing. It's not a union project. I'll just turn up and do it. And I did. And I'm so glad that it, it is such a great documentary. Queer Planet, NBC Peacock next year. Keep your eye out for it. Um, finally, someone has talked about some of these interesting things. It just opens up your world. It's so fascinating. It takes away from these ridiculous small town uh, Sunday school lessons on biology and just go, oh, wow, we're actually unique and interesting. The rest of the world is crazy <laughs> and it's, it's good to learn about it. That was me just saying it's not about the money. It's about being part of something special. Now, I don't advocate working for nothing normally. Absolutely not. But in this instance, they weren't paying the expert uh, guests on the doco anyway. I was happy to be, be able to do it. So always be ready to compromise with other people, collaborate. That means compromise. You've got to be able to respect their creative genius and their experience and help them help you make the project better. And you've got to be up for whatever because you don't know what's going to come down the pipe. Some of the offers are insane, but if we're not here to do insane shit, what are we here to do? What's next, Kyle? Beautiful. That is very well said. So uh, now for someone who this is, this comes from another um, Bushmaster. They, they, they said, you know, I want to work in Hollywood. I want to work in wildlife filmmaking, but I'm not a writer. I don't know how to use a camera. I can't roll sound. I don't know anything about light. None of that stuff. What are some other options for me? Okay. So when you join the army, you don't know anything. You got a bad haircut. You got a stiff pair of green pants and uh, a gut full of fear. All right. What time you finish basic training, you know something and you know a lot about yourself. So I encourage you to dive in. Okay. There's a lot of other options. First of all, every camera operator, every writer, uh, every lighting guy, every sound guy, they all started where you are now. They didn't know anything. They hadn't done anything. You know how you change that? You change that by learning something and doing something. Remember what I said in a previous episode? Sign up as a paying volunteer so you don't get paid you pay to be there on some of these projects in the field go to borneo work with the orangutans go <coughs> go to the amazon uh, and work with the amazon rangers and others go into africa work with painted dogs do these volunteer programs in the field get some field experience start to know what it's like to get dirty start to know what it's like go to the pantanal with uh, with patricia medici and work with the lowland tapirs get out there and do something a hundred percent chance of nothing ever going to happen if you don't get off your ass and get out in the bush. Absolutely never going to happen. You can't be online doing things and, and hope it's going to happen. But you can be online and learn skills. 
So you could do graphics. Okay. You could learn how to write slow. You could, you could learn to do a lot of things. You could learn editing, but there are definitely schools to learn these things. But honestly, one of the easiest ways is to get some experiences to be an intern on some of these wildlife conservation projects. And then through connections that you will make, I guarantee it. Remember how I met John Cleese? I had nothing to do with Hollywood. When I first met him, it was all to do with saving animals from extinction. Uh, then you can perhaps be an intern on a production. A lot of guys start off as interns and assistants on productions and end up working their way through the ranks and learning skills as they go. So there is a point of entry for anything, but to get to the head of the queue, be the person who has done something interesting. I gotta be honest with you, none of the skills, technical skills I have, you know, disarming landmines, blowing up tanks, going to space, uh, you know, fighting with angry apes, uh, being bitten by bats. Um, really, none of those skills actually translate to producing television and film, but they're all interesting. They all show initiative, self-discipline, creativity, and courage. And they open the door for me because I'm the guy who gets stuff done. So be the, be the Bushmaster who gets stuff done. Start somewhere, get dirty, meet people, meet more people, put your hand up and go do the thing. And before you know it, you've got new skills, interesting experiences, and new access. Next thing you know, you're an intern or assistant on a project learning from the best. Next question. Well said. Experience, very important. Um, all right, so the, the bread and butter of all of these documentaries and, and projects are showcasing beautiful images and beautiful landscapes and beautiful animals. How do you take those and curate them into a story or a narrative um, rather than just a, a mishmash of beautiful pictures? So this is, yeah, this is an interesting question because it's a bifurcated answer. One is about the original vision that you have and your mission. And the other is about the reality of filmmaking. Um, when we were shooting uh, Fear Island, Fortress of the Bears, and DeLuca was, was directing there, um, <laughs> I remember he took two days to kind of work out what we were doing because it just wasn't immediately obvious. He'd flown in from some other project and just being dumped on his lap. He's like, okay. And remember that we'd had Johnny Inches turn up as kind of the veteran. And Johnny Inches, if you haven't met him, I mean, he hosts the, uh, the Roadless Travel. And he is dangerously handsome man. Should have his face on a coin, every coin. Um, but it wasn't obvious what the roles were. Is Johnny Inches the host? Are we following his journey? That was one theory. Really, he was there as insurance because no one believed that I was pretty enough and, uh, you know, intelligible enough because of my Australian accent, my Tasmanian guttural intonations so people know what I'm doing. So was he there as insurance? The whole thing together was his, his voyage. Was it my story? No one really knew. And finally, uh, DeLuca worked out. He said, no, no, no. So it's BTG's thing, but Johnny is coming in here as the, the credible outsider to test all of BTG's theory. So he's an independent voice of reason. And if we can convince him of BTG's discovery, then it's legit. And if we can't, it's bogus. So he set up, so there was a creative structure that he had to come up with on the ground. So yeah, we're looking for the biggest bears ever seen. Fine. Hopefully we'll find it. And we did. But in the interim, the creative decision is what is the, the, the relationship between these two people? How are they helping us 
tell the story? How is the viewer relating through the lens of each? So we go there with a mission to find the world's biggest bear and to show the audience, to go on a great adventure and to take the audience along with us. But the storytelling process, that's that's a big creative decision. Now, once you've made that decision, it changed kind of the structure of the way we did things. But then uh, Anuj, you know, the head of uh, post-production, it comes back to him and all the editing teams, and they have to go through what we actually got because particularly when you're filming wildlife, you don't know what's going to happen from one second to the next. You know, you might end up, you know, amidst a thousand bears, underneath a bear, shut out of a bear. You don't know. You might not see a bear for 10 days. Of course, it doesn't happen in good You see one every other hour or two if you know what you're doing. But the footage, you know, the weather, the kind of stuff that we got, the story fragments, did we tell the story successfully? And if we don't, they have to piece it all together in a way that makes some sort of cohesive narrative sense. So there are several levels to this. The first starts with a clear mission of the story you want to tell. If you can't explain that mission in less than 30 seconds, then it's not a good mission. The classic elevator pitch. I think Steven Spielberg said that basically if you can tell the story in 30 seconds, it's a good, it'd probably make a good movie. And that's true of wildlife stories. If you have to get all fluffy about justifying this and that and the ecosystem and conservation and global warming, it's not a good mission. But if you can say, here's a random one. I say, <clears throat> we want to show how increasing open ocean temperature has resulted in an explosion of squid populations that's destroying the marine ecosystem. Boom. Complex idea, but super simple. Okay. Warm water, more squid, squid eat a whole bunch of fish. What's going to happen? Okay. Uh, sort of apocalyptic uh, squid. Got it. In our case, it was isolated genetic clusters of bears on islands in Alaska produce the largest land carnivore in the world. We're going to find the biggest. That's it. So we knew what the mission was. Now we have to work out how to tell it. And there'll be decisions all on the way, hopefully as early as possible. In wildlife, uh, I say it's not just wildlife, because even in a movie, stuff happens. The weather changes, locations can't be found, props can't be found, actors get sick, stuff happens. You have to continually make these creative decisions to ensure that your storytelling stays on track. And as I said, then that burden goes from the director to the editors uh, later, and they make those decisions again. So what we finally see on the screen, remember, we're there for weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks. And it's two hours on television, which is really 80 minutes, 80 minutes of actual television time for the American version, uh, 95 for the international version because they sell less ads. God bless them. And uh, so they are restructuring that. So it's always crazy to me when I come back from the field and I've just spent, you know, more than a month or so just slogging out in the mud and the rain. And then I see what's on the screen and stuff that was incredibly dramatic to me and incredibly physically difficult and emotionally draining ends up either being a few seconds long or not even in the cut. And I'm just, oh my God, how could they not put that in? But then if I watch the whole thing, I go, ah, I see. They're trying to tell this story. And if it doesn't help the story, you got to get rid of it or reduce it. And it breaks your heart. I know in the international version, they show this enormous thigh bone that we found half buried in this hidden lake. And we measured it and did the math. And it was just this monumental bear. Uh, that, and when it was alive, it was just this huge bear. And in the American version, they had to cut 15 minutes. They cut that entire scene. Heartbreaking. 
but that's the way it is. So have a clear mission. Once you get on the ground, make your adjustments, refine the mission, make sure your story storytelling is key. And then as things go wrong, and they will, make adjustments to always remember that you're there to tell a story. And that's your only job. So the rest of it doesn't matter. Do what it takes to tell the story. And know that in the end, your post-production team is going to help you edit again at the end. So that it, once again, you come out of it having told a story. Because a lot of pretty pictures, a lot of gory pictures, that's not a show. That's a slideshow, not a TV show or a movie. Um, so that's what I would say. Mission, continue to refine your storytelling process. And never forget, you know, as we say in the military, selection and maintenance of the aim. And the aim is to tell a story that you set out to tell. Love it. Very well said. Um, this, this next question kind of piggybacks on the previous question a little bit. Um, basically, the world that we live in in the Hollywood, when, it, when you boil it down, it's entertainment. And with the world of wildlife and adventure and stuff, we want to educate people and, and help them understand our natural world. How do you balance those two, the, the balance between education versus entertainment? Okay, it's a good question. So first of all is never be self-righteous. Don't be a dick. Uh, you know what you're getting into. You're absolutely correct, Kyle, on this point and on no other point you've ever spoken to me in the history of our friendship. Um, and that is Hollywood is an entertainment factory. Entertainment is the reason why people want to see or read what you've produced. And I think about this when I'm writing my books. At the end of every section, every chapter, every paragraph, I'm always asking myself, what is the reader feeling now? What are they feeling now? And I do that all the way through the book so that I know roughly what their emotional trajectory is. And I'm trying to control that to optimize my storytelling. And that's absolutely true with, with uh, movies and television as well. Now, there are levels of programming that go from extremely light and frothy to very serious, sometimes heavy and dark. So not all networks are equal. They're all telling different types of stories. And yeah, there's a big bunch in the middle. It's a big, big cotton candy blob of sameness. But by and large, you need to look at these networks as individual entities and find one that meets uh, you where your creative heart and soul is for that particular project. So for example, you've got Nat Geo, which is a lot more populous now that it's part of Disney, but they're doing lovely stuff, beautiful things. That's a little bit less uh, candy-coated than Discovery or Animal Planet. Uh, Discovery has a lot of, of very interesting, exciting stuff. It's a little bit more populous, a little bit more dramatic. Um, stuff that's not purely nature or wildlife at all now. A lot of docu-soaps, a lot of interesting shows, uh, occasionally some juiced-up stuff, uh, some big, shiny, spiky stuff for Shark Week or whatever. Um, that's Yeah, it's science, but it's it's science with fireworks. You know, it's fun. Uh, Animal Planet, similar, but different, you know. So you got Smithsonian, uh, which is much drier and uh, much more serious. There are many different levels. But yes, you're going to sell entertainment. I remember what I said earlier. When someone takes the time to read your book or to watch your movie or enjoy, you know, binge your TV series, they're giving you part of their life. And you have to respect that. You have to give them something back. That should be your motivation as a creator in whatever space you're in, whether an academic or anything else. You've got to give them value for the life they've shared with you to uh, consume your content. So 
yes, it has to be entertaining first. I would hope that you have the talent in order to contain interesting information, a compelling argument for whatever thesis you have, if it pertains to conservation. But if you can't do that in a way that's entertaining, which is to say, speaks to the emotions of, of, of the viewer, then you are either lazy or talentless or both. So that's the challenge. And as I said, the, the mix, you know, think of it as a, a soundboard. You're pushing up the worthiness or up the entertainment or whatever it is. There's a, there's a certain dynamic that's right for certain networks. You need to find the home that's right to you. Now, Smithsonian budgets are much smaller than a budget for, say, uh, Discovery, and that's smaller than what would be for Nat Geo, and that's smaller, again, than would be for Fox or CBS or whatever else. But the point is there are different expectations for different networks. There should be different expectations for creators and producers and hosts, and you need to be at peace with where you find yourself for a particular project. One project doesn't define your entire career. You can do things with different networks and different levels. Um, you know, I've only worked for a couple, you know, CBS, um, E, which went on Chelsea lately, uh, Netflix, of course, for Penguin Bloom and for, um, and for uh, Adventure Beast and then Animal Planet and Discovery for everything else. They're all great. I enjoy my experience with each of them, but they're all different. And what I would do with Chelsea Handler uh, on Chelsea lately with animals was to a certain degree education, but it was all about funny and irreverent jokes and, and giving her setups for her to be brilliant and witty and caustic, okay? And then Little Giants was a very different thing, okay? You're not one thing. You're a multifaceted organism, okay? Uh, you're a diamond. You're a, you're a biodegradable diamond, okay? You're a glittering star turd, okay? And you can just shine in any place they put you knowing the constellation that you're in and being part of that structure. That's what I would say to you is that... Um, Yes, it's entertainment, but a lot of things can be entertaining and still be incredibly profound. Be honest about your objectives and be happy where you end up. Don't, as I used to say, don't try to build a cardboard Rolls Royce and don't try to build a, a gold-plated Toyota Camry, okay? You find the audience that's right for you, you build the appropriate vehicle, and you stay true to your mission as best you can. And if you do that, you'll go places. Very nice. Very well said. Um, all right. Last one here. Yeah, just quick question. Um, if you weren't doing this for a career, what would you be doing? Oh, it's interesting. Um, look, I, I've had a number of jobs. Obviously, I was a soldier first and foremost. And uh, you all know how that ended with a tropical respiratory infection to start a second career. Um, I never thought I was going to be in television and film. It wasn't my goal ever. It still kind of isn't. I just, I'm just not going to be the kind of person that says no to creative challenges. I'm very happy writing books. I'm just finished my next book. I'm looking forward to coming out uh, in uh, April next year. So I could very happily go back to writing books in a farm, and you know, I don't need people to look at me for validation. I don't, I don't need that at all. So the TV and film thing. If I wasn't doing it, I wouldn't miss it um, because I'm very happy with my publishing side of it. I love storytelling. I love writing. Uh, I won't live long enough to write all the books that I want to write. I'm at peace with that. However, I'm going to keep doing it. You know, it's just, no one gets to say no to you. 
that's the great thing. No one is the boss of you. No one gets to tell you what you can't do. There are plenty of people who say, no, not here, not us. Plenty of red light people, very few green light people. And much of my secret has been about going around under and stepping over people who want to stop me. And, and uh, you know, I couldn't get my books published in Australia or New Zealand or the UK. And I came to the US and got a publishing deal here in Kansas City. Uh, go Chiefs. And then, you know, I was never going to get a TV offer in Australia. Uh, I'm not part of that little club. Got one here. <laughs> Out of nowhere. Thank you, Betty White. God rest you. God rest your soul. Um, you know, these opportunities seemingly come out of nowhere because you've already put in the work. And so, yeah, Bushmasters, so many of you are prepared to put in the work. I know that. I've seen the stuff you're posting on the chats. I've seen the kind of photographs that you take, the footage that you take. Uh, can the work standard be better? Yeah, you know it can. Should you try to be better? Yes. Try harder to get it out to the world? Yes. Much of it being a creative professional is putting the very best of yourself in your work and then sharing it with as many people as possible. And ironically, not only is that the artist uh, creed, it's, it's also the key to commercial success as well. So the challenge is there. But for me, if I wasn't doing television and film, I would probably just focus on my writing and my wildlife conservation on the side. Um, I know my mom wanted me to be a lawyer. Everybody else wanted me to be a doctor like my dad. I just never had any interest in the law or in medicine other than as a recipient for 21 surgeries and seven treatments for rabies. Um, I just, just wasn't that interested in it. I think one of the keys to my success, such as it is, is that I try to be brutally honest about what I want to do. I own it. I don't always share these goals and desires publicly, but it, I don't lie to myself about the level of success um, that I want. And it's not for me about being famous. I do want to be well known. It's not about money, although I, I have great affection for excessive wealth. Um, you know, it's about being at a level where I have creative power to do whatever I want to do. And that is a rare privilege, but it's an achievable goal. Now, I'm not quite there yet. I have more opportunities than most, but I'm not at a level where I can just, you ever see Being John Malkovich? I love that film. Um, absolutely love that film. And then the, the possessed John Malkovich turns up to his agent and says, I'm not going to be a great actor anymore. I just want to be a puppeteer. And the agent goes, yeah, no problem. We'll make that happen. I'm not there. Um, very few people are there, but that's my goal, to be at that level where I go, you know what? I want to do this. I want to do that. Now, I was just speaking to Forrest. He's over in Florida working on, uh, uh, you know, doing some spoken word stuff for a symphony, which is very cool. I wrote the libretto uh, for a symphony in Australia, a, a reworking of the Carnival of the uh, Animals by Camille Sanson. Um, opportunities come. Got to go for it. Say yes. And then eventually, if you keep doing that at a high level, other people, more people will say yes to you. So I own the fact that I want to achieve a certain level of creative success if I can do whatever I want. It's an outrageous goal. It's a completely reasonable goal. And it's open to every Bushmaster watching or listening today. No one can stop you from doing it if you put the work in. It's, it's really as simple as that. So put your shoulder to the mountain. Take a, a big bite out of the love handles of fate. Spit it in their face and, and get messy. So... Thank you for your questions, Kyle. You're a beautiful man. Thank you for facilitating this. Uh, this has been an episode of Semi-Indestructible, proudly presented in partnership with the Wild Times podcast and sponsored by Adventure Beast. Watch it now, the wildlife animated comedy series on Netflix.
and you can see that worldwide. Uh, looking forward to a great show next week. And remember, life's short. Death is forever. Get amongst it. Cheers. <laughs>